Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles as we read the passage that we've been singing about and been reflecting on. And uh, many of our songs have been built around this morning, the incidents that occurred in Matthew 21, 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel, which is page 1,168, if you're using a pew Bible, which I hope you will if you don't have one. Give you a second to find that, Matthew 21. We're going to read the first 17 verses and try to understand some of the significance of what was occurring in this very important incident in the life of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, The Lord is in need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him, and those who followed after, were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you might take the familiar words of this passage, and we pray that you might help us to have eyes to see Christ, Christ on his terms, Christ as he is presented to us in the scriptures, Christ coming to a situation which he knew he was going to die, coming in a public way, coming on his own uh, determined pattern to make it clear who he really was. So Lord, help us, we pray today, to see Christ in all of his glory and in all his humility 
And we pray, Father, that in looking at Christ and considering him, that we might find hope for our souls, that we might find that we too can have access to God, that indeed you would save us, Lord, from ourselves and from our sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's interesting as we come to this text because the text indicates in the previous passage that the incident occurred prior to this one was an incident in Jericho. Jericho is down in the valley near one of the lowest points on the earth. Um, The Dead Sea is located about 800 feet below sea level, and Jericho is is located about 800 feet above sea level. But from Jericho and making your way to Jerusalem, you're climbing, because Jerusalem is about 2,100 feet above sea level. And so the one day's trip is a day that's in an upward climb. And if you've ever had the opportunity to come to Jerusalem and see the city as it is today, you know that one of the vantage points is if you come and to the top of the Mount of Olives and you look down upon the city, you've reached a point that's even higher than certain points uh, in the city of Jerusalem. And indeed, as we have the opportunity now to look at this passage, it's as if the vantage point is now looking down upon the city, Matthew is describing this incident of Jesus' entrance there. And we've reached, in many ways, the turning point in the gospel. A turning point in several senses. First of all, chapters 1 through 21, there has been a lot of ground covered. There's been almost three years of public ministry. But now in chapters 21 to the end of the book, to 28, there's a focus on the last week of Jesus' life. It's as if everything had been in normal speed and they're moving ahead, recording what happened. And then you get to the chapter 21. It's as if you get into slow motion. There's much more description. There's much more content about what happened on each particular day. And so it's that slowing down and focusing in on these very critically important days, the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry. We also know there's a turning point because when you look in this book, Prior to this point, in chapters 1 through 20, there have been a number of instances in which Jesus has urged the people who have witnessed his power and who have seen his miracles, who have seen his glory revealed in that sense. He has made it known and he has urged them not to make that known to other people. For example, in chapter 8, Jesus commanded the leper that he cleansed. He said, see that you tell no one. And then in chapter 9, Jesus sternly warned the two blind men that he healed with these words, let no one know about this. Odd words for someone who's performing miracles. Chapter 12 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. And along with many other people that he healed, he warned them not to make it known. And then in chapter 17, Jesus had three of his disciples with him and he returns from being on top of the mountain where he had been uh, transfigured and his glory had been revealed to them. And he says to them as they've come down the mountain, tell this vision, what you've just seen, tell it to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so much of his public ministry, Jesus had tried not to fan into flame this messianic expectations that people were wrapped up in when they saw him perform these powerful works of miracles. But all this changes now in chapter 21. Jesus deliberately 
is orchestrating this dramatic public entrance into the city of Jerusalem, and he is doing it to fulfill the prophecy in a way that clearly reveals that he wants people to see him and to know who he is, he indeed the Messiah. And during this last week, things are going to be different. His former approach to ministry is now going to be abandoned. He intentionally is choreographing his public appearance so that the strategic moment that is unfolding here will reveal his true identity and he will reveal his true mission on a much larger scale. Prior to this public event, Jesus had thwarted various attempts that people had made. The excited crowds had said at one point they wanted to make him king by force. He just sort of escaped that endeavor. And there were other people who were attempting to try to destroy him by his opponents. But now the moment had come where he was come to serve, to give his life, he said earlier in chapter 20, to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus is choosing this moment to reveal his true identity to the multitudes of pilgrims who have gathered there in Jerusalem at this time of the year. And we know, and knowing that he was going to quite cause quite a stir, and that the crowd would be asking various questions, look at verse 10, because it's clear that having put these things together in the way he did, and the kinds of things that were being said, people were starting to ask questions. Who is this? And Jesus, I believe, is showing us three significant aspects of his identity in these particular accounts. The first one he shows to us is that he presents himself to Jerusalem as an authoritative prophet of God. Jesus refused to be squeezed into the mold of widespread expectations among the Jews of his generation. He brought an unpopular message. And rather than going with the flow and adopting the norms of those who hold positions of power and influence among the religious leaders of his day, Jesus subscribed to and made it very clear that he was ministering in accordance with and underneath the authority of the Scriptures. Notice it says at the beginning of the text of chapter 21 that he sent two disciples to the next village to retrieve a donkey and a colt. Why? So that he could enter the city according to the prediction of the prophet Zechariah. Jesus sought to make it unmistakably clear that his ministry of selfless service was in accordance with and in fulfillment of the word of the prophets. And look at the crowd's response. Verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. They recognized him as a prophet. Most people don't have a problem if you say, oh, I'm a prophet. And they didn't have a problem recognizing that Jesus was a prophet. But they did eventually have greater and greater problems with him as a prophet. Because a prophet from God, Jesus demonstrated a zeal for God's truth and God's word. And with righteous indignation, Jesus approached Jerusalem. And when he sees what's going on in the midst of the temple complex, and he realizes that there's all of this taking advantage of poor pilgrims and trying to make profit and all of the the system that the Pharisees and all of the scribes had put in place that were taking advantage of all these people, including the widow, if you remember earlier in the Gospels, where it said that she gave her last two cents. So she'd go home and have nothing and die. I mean, that's the kind of fraudulent system that was taking advantage of even the poor. And here are these religious leaders 
When, they, when he calls the fact that they have now made it into a den of thieves in verse 13, look at the verse, reaction in verse 31 of the religious leaders. They ask him, by what authority are you taking this action? So he warned them, look at this comment. Talk about prophetic words that caused offense. <laughs> I don't know what else you could say that would be more offensive to these uh, spiritual leaders, religious leaders. He says, the tax gatherers who were absolutely despised, by the way, Matthew, the one writing this, was a former tax gatherer. He says, tax gatherers and harlots, prostitutes, are going to get into the kingdom before you people. Wow, what a statement. What a word from God, from the prophet of God, that would cause tremendous reaction and animosity on their part. He courageously stood his ground. He spoke the truth in the midst of strong opposition. And because he fearlessly refused to compromise his message or to cater to the wishes of the crowds and the various demands of the religious leaders, he was what? Well, you just fast forward seven days and he was put to death by way of crucifixion. Look at chapter 21 and notice verses 45 and 46. It didn't keep Jesus from speaking honestly and clearly and directly. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid, not of him, of the multitudes, because they held, that is, the multitudes held him to be a prophet. You see, true prophets of God never win popularity contests. They never enjoy high approval ratings. The message of a prophet from God who is accurately sending and speaking the message from God invariably speaks to the uncomfortable issues of repentance in calling people to terms about their sin and calling them to turn and have a change of mind, a change of heart regarding their sin. And so he has various warnings and rebukes that Jesus is going to deliver now. And it won't take time, but sometime you read chapter 23. It's an entire chapter. His last long portion of teaching that Matthew records contains woe after woe, warning upon warning of the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of the day, calling them to repent, exposing them for who they were, ask, calling them to repent of their idolatry and spiritual compromise. It reminds me of Jeremiah in the 23rd chapter. How Jesus is so unlike many of the prophets who had come before, the prophets of the day in a sense, who were there in the temple and all the various religious leaders who were not bringing the word of the Lord. Here is Jesus bringing a word that's so much different from them. Matthew, I mean, Jeremiah 23, we read these words. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you, that is, these false prophets, They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. The people have been listening to these religious leaders give them their own vision, their own words, rather than the word from God. And here is Jesus entering Jerusalem in this dramatic fashion, and he knows that his prophetic ministry is about to come to an end. And like so many other prophets before him, Jesus was about to be rejected, as many of the prophets had also been rejected. Only a few chapters later, in Matthew 23, Jesus offers this mournful lament. 
He's, he is mourning over the city and the, the rejection that he's receiving from the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He knows what's coming his way. As the prophet from God, he knows he is to be rejected. Jesus came to Jerusalem as the authoritative prophet of God. Raising the question, are we listening to the prophet Jesus in our own lives? Have we taken to heart his warnings? Have we thought through the implications of Jesus' very strong words calling us to repent, calling us to turn our back away from various sins and areas of compromise in our lives, calling us to indeed know that He sees through all the veneer, He sees through all of sometimes the ways in which we try to hide our sin and mask it, make ourselves appear better than we really are. Have we taken to heart His warnings? Do you know that Jesus speaks more in His Gospels about hell than He does about other topics like money? Jesus indeed speaks of hell here and warns of people who refuse to deal with it in a direct and and effective fashion about the need to not let their sin lead them into eternal separation from God. But listen to his promises. He also comes not only warning, but he comes to give promises to help those who struggle, for those who do repent, for those who do turn, for those who are weary of trying to improve themselves. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My friend, if you're looking for rest from your soul, a rest that is between knowing that you no longer have to strive to improve yourself to somehow be right with God, listen to Jesus. He is telling us truth that will change our lives. Jesus taught in Matthew 7 that whoever hears his word and does not act upon his word, but just merely listens to it, merely politely takes the time to think about it, or at least consider it. I'll sit and endure listening to it a little while. But if you don't act on it, if you don't put it into practice, if you don't apply it to your life, he says, you're like a person who builds your house upon sand. It's like building your house out there near Montauk. And if you just build on some sort of just piece of ground out there near the edge of the ocean, we all know what happens when we get a nor'easter, don't we? Some of that uh, cliff upon which the houses are built out there starts disappearing more and more and more and more as that sand is just washed away by the power of the wind and the waves. And so similarly... Jesus talks about the winds blowing and bursting against the house the guy built upon sand. And great was its fall. It was completely destroyed at some point. Then he contrasts that with those who hear the words that he has taught and they put them into practice. They take them to heart. They really live them out. And they they take hold of his promises. And they turn from their sin when he warns them about sin in their lives. Those who do the words that he's taught and act upon them may be compared to the wise man who builds his house upon a rock. Both people building houses, one's upon a rock, and despite the rain that falls, he says, the flooding that occurs, the winds that blow and burst against the house, the house of the person who built it on the rock, who obeyed and took to heart the teachings of Christ, it does not 
fall. What's he talking about there? I think Jesus is trying to say in his own clever way, if you listen but you don't obey or put into practice his teaching, you leave yourself vulnerable to the day of judgment, the ultimate day of a flood that will be greater than anything you've ever come up against upon which no one can find refuge unless you have taken Jesus' teaching to heart and you've acted upon it. It's easy to think that Jesus, as the prophet, has clever, esoteric insight into all sorts of big issues of life and to only talk about it or listen to it in a casual, disinterested kind of way. It makes all the difference in the world if we take it to heart. And sometimes Jesus has confrontive words we need to hear. Other times he has words of great comfort and consolation and hope and giving us assurance that he came to seek and save those who were lost. And so the prophet was entering into Jerusalem. The issue is, will anybody listen to him? Are we taking his words to heart? But as he entered Jerusalem that day, he also came as a humble, sovereign king. Now that's quite a statement when you think about it, that what happened on that particular day. It wasn't very impressive from the standpoint of the Romans. I mean, you talk about big displays when the emperor uh, goes down in their great military uh, battle victory and he comes into their city of Rome. I'm sure they knew how to put on some big uh, parades that were quite impressive. But here is Jesus. Even though he's king, he chooses to enter Jerusalem by way of a donkey. And many Gentile kings who would have come riding upon a horse, they would come into a city to declare, I'm coming here to engage in battle to conquer you. But Jesus came as the king of peace. He made a dramatic, deliberate entrance into Jerusalem to communicate that he's not there to fight a military war with swords and spears, but he's there to engage in spiritual battle. He came not to overthrow human rulers, but to defeat Satan and to set his people free from Satan's tyranny. And contrary to his lowly appearance, he looked like a, you know, a helpless, pitiful figure of someone coming in on a donkey like that rather than some impressive Roman emperor or king, even though he looks that way, Jesus had at his beck and call even greater legions than the Roman generals would have had when they surrounded various cities in their military conquests. Jesus had scores and legions of angels that he could have called at that moment. But he did not come into Jerusalem to do battle with the Romans or do battle with other of those who were gathered in the city of that time. He came to defeat the God of this world, the devil, the world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 6. He laid aside his rightful use of authority and power and laid down his life on the cross and surrendered to the plans of his father. And as king, he sacrificed his life in order to overthrow him who had usurped his rightful place. And Jesus won a cosmic battle only days from that particular occasion when he entered. And he rendered powerless Satan, who up to that time had the power of death. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2, if you will, in your Bible. Notice this comment about Satan and how Jesus conquered him, who had the power of death. 
Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. As a triumphant king, Jesus is able to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I can remember when I was much younger. As a boy, I can remember being deathly afraid of dying. I mean, I was absolutely petrified at the thought of thinking that someday if I were to leave um, my house and go in a car involved in some sort of accident in a vehicle I was riding in, I thought to myself, oh, if I died, I knew full well that death would usher me right from where I was into the presence of God. And the thought of that terrified me because I knew that God knew everything about me. I knew that I could fool a lot of people, but I couldn't fool God. And so I lived a number of years with this kind of sense of trepidation and kind of, from my own point of view as a child, thinking, I hope I don't ever die. It's a terrible thought. But notice in this text, it talks about Jesus came to liberate his people from enslavement to the kind of fear that Satan puts into people about death. And that he's trying to free us from enslavement and sin, restore us into right relationship with God. And my friend, my testimony to you this day is I am not afraid of dying in it all. I look forward to the day someday. I don't look forward to death itself, the process of death and the process of dying, but I look forward to what's on the other side. Because I know Jesus Christ came and won a victory over Satan and he paid for my sins when he died on that cross and he is the one who I trust as my conquering king. And notice that the plot to arrest him, it may have appeared as if when they crucified him that they somehow destroyed his kingdom. That the king who was approaching, somehow he blew it, somehow it didn't work, somehow he must have Fallen apart. But Ephesians 1 tells us that because of the resurrection, which we're going to celebrate, I hope, in a great way next Sunday. I hope you'll be here with us. That he, and he raised from the dead. He certified, God certified, that Jesus is far above all rulers, all authorities, all powers, all dominions, anyone who has a dominion in the world, and that every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, there is none greater than Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. It may have looked as if the king was coming and everything fell apart. It's just the opposite, my friend. It's just the opposite. As I've meditated upon Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, riding on this lowly donkey. Have you ever ridden on a donkey, anybody? Uh, I can still remember riding on a donkey in Yosemite National Park. Uh, it's a long, uncomfortable process, especially when he's uncooperative. And my brother had a donkey that they think must have given the wrong weight or something. My dad must have misestimated my brother because his donkey would constantly turn around and look at him like, who is this guy on me? wouldn't go anywhere. He's constantly kicking this thing, trying to get him to go. Riding on donkeys is not a very glamorous place to be. And as I've thought about Jesus as he's riding in, it did not appear from those who saw him. Now, they were pretty impressed with him. They were crying out, Hosanna. There's a lot of excitement about that. But there are many people who probably saw that and they concluded, that appearance of this guy coming that way, they're going to walk away with a false impression that Jesus was not the sovereign king overall. That all over those events were about to happen that week, 
Jesus is just coming in and it, those things are going to sweep him into a direction he never dreamed. This text clearly is indicating the opposite, my friend. Jesus, as king, is approaching Jerusalem and he's making it very clear, I am in control of all the events that are about to occur to me as I go into the deepest, darkest, most uh, unjust set of circumstances anyone will ever endure. I think we need to realize this, my friend. There's a lesson here for us. There are many events in our lives that lead us to question if Jesus really is the King and Sovereign Lord of all. I can remember reading the book Suffering in the Sovereignty of God, which I would recommend to you as being a very excellent uh, compilation of a number of different authors speaking to the issue of suffering, including uh, Johnny Erickson Tata and Stephen Saint, uh, whose father was killed as a martyr. Uh, Erickson Tata is a person who lives her life in a wheelchair. Another man lost a child, a stillbirth, uh, who was born uh, and uh, saw this little baby die. Here in this text, it wrestles with the issue, how do we understand God to be in control of things and to know that people are suffering? And one of the interesting chapters here has a reflection by uh, David Pollison. And in this he says, Jesus, in a sense, was abandoned so that we would not be forsaken in our suffering. Your significant sufferings are not happening by accident, writes Pallison. There is no random chance sufferings, no purposeless misery that we endure. There is no such thing as bad luck, not even a tragedy. Tragedy we often think of as ruining or destruction or downfall, something that occurs and goes into from bad to worse, never gets better. But with Christ and knowing the sovereignty of God, we know that suffering is going somewhere. And Jesus was going into Jerusalem knowing that there was a purpose in his suffering. It was a redemptive purpose, a purpose in which he was going to help us see that even though what happened was horrendous, in terms of physical pain, but also in terms of what was happening in terms of justice and ethical, moral, horrible evils were occurring at the innocent Son of God. What he's saying to us in this particular incident is that sometimes we miss the fact that the sovereignty of God implies some sort of fatalism, like que sera, sera. You just sort of resign yourself to it. But you need to look at Christ. He is facing suffering, knowing full well it's going to happen, and he has control over these things, but he does so in order to redeem that suffering. The God who loves you, right, Pollison, is a master of your sorrows. Though it feels impossible and devastates earthly hopes, God sets a boundary he sets a boundary, not where we would set the boundary, but he's convinced of this hard thing, that from this hard thing will come good that's beyond all that you can ask, imagine, see, hear, or conceive in your heart. You will pass through the valley of the shadow of death filled with evils, but you will say that goodness and mercy have followed you all the days of your life. I don't know what kind of dark valley you're going through or have gone through, but my friend, I hope you'll take another reminder as you see Christ 
approaching Jerusalem, knowing full well he's going into the deepest, darkest valley there ever was. You'll never go in deepest, dark valleys he went through. But he did so as the king who was sovereign over all. And he did so in order to establish hope for those of us who suffer. To also establish that there's understanding for those of us who suffer. That we're not alone in our suffering. That the king is not far off and removed from us. And we who suffer in this world have someone, there's no way he can understand what that's like. That's not the case at all, my friend. The king came to serve and he yielded his life in great suffering. Knowing that Jesus was in control of the events leading up to and including his crucifixion reminds us of this important biblical principle. That God in Christ works all things, all things, including the darkest of deeds that have been committed against you. Together, he works them together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Jesus may now appear to be weak. He may now appear to be limited. He may now appear, from your point of view, where are you, Jesus? Where are you, God? Do something about all that's wrong in this world. Remember, my friend, Jesus did something as he approached that city. He came to bring about redemption. He came to overthrow the forces of evil and to bring hope to those of us who suffer. Jesus may appear to be weak now. (laughs) And to many people, that's the way they think of Jesus. He's helpless and weak. But my friend, Scripture tells us otherwise. Ephesians 1.11 says, Jesus Christ works all things after the counsel of His will. He is not helpless. He is the one who's working it all together for good. You say, I don't... It's hard for me to imagine that. I have a hard time comprehending that. May I encourage you to read over this next week as you do think through the events that occurred in Jerusalem and Jesus' last week of life. Read the commentary that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 in which he talks about the fact that God, in accordance to His plan, you people have done evil things. And yet God has worked it to accomplish His great redemption in Christ. These are themes that we need to rehearse in our minds to see Christ as the humble, lowly king over all. He is the king today, ruling over your life and even over mine. Let's trust him. Let's remember him. Let's learn from him. Let's entrust our souls to our faithful creator as we're called to suffer, even as he did, entrusting his soul to God. Another interesting thing to think about is where did Jesus, as he went through as king all those sufferings, what did he do? Throughout his sufferings, what is he quoting in the last moments of his life? He's quoting the Psalms. He's quoting Scripture. He's turning his heart and thoughts to God. He's not turning away from God in his sufferings. And he says, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. Same thing as Peter says, entrust your soul to him your faithful creator, as you are called to suffer. There are reasons to trust the king. He has suffered and he's in control. The third point, as we think of Christ and his entrance into Jerusalem that day, he came as the purifying priest. The purifying priest. I read up a little history 
onto the occurrences that uh, took place 200 years, less than 200 years before this event in Jerusalem. And I found out that Jesus Christ, in his entrance into Jerusalem, in many ways had similar kinds of events going on as did an event 200 years earlier with these palm branches being waved and all of the commotion going on and celebration. It was similar to one that had followed after one of the worst disasters that occurred in uh, Jewish history there in Jerusalem in which the city was destroyed by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus had come with his armies as a Seleucid king, and he had come to ravage Jerusalem, killed a bunch of Jews there, and he went into the temple, and he made a clear point to defy the God of the Jews. He came in, he desecrated the, the temple by offering pigs on an altar, which was just outrageous for any kind of dedicated, sincere Jewish person. And then he turned the temple chambers into brothels. I mean, it's just over the top. And the followers of a guy named Judas Maccabeus had organized together. For a while they had been pacifists, and finally they said, this is not working, and they finally took up arms. And they said, we're throwing off these people, and we're going to recapture the city, and we're going to turn it into what it was supposed to be. And so they won a battle, they restored the, the city of Jerusalem under their control again, and they purified and rededicated the temple. It was a great day of celebration. And listen to the description of what occurred on that day of rededication of the temple. Carrying branches, leafy boughs, and palms, they offered hymns to God who had brought the cleansing of his own holy place. They were waving these palms as a way of celebrating this great final rededication and cleansing of the temple. Now the celebration that took place when Jesus entered Jerusalem perhaps may have been an echo of the similar longings that the Jews that the Jews had to remove those who were corrupting and oppressing them at the time in which Jesus arrived, those Romans. And they clearly were celebrating the arrival of this messianic figure who would restore, but not as they expected. Jesus cleansed the temple. He came in and he was concerned about what was going on in that temple, claiming he had authority over it and knowing that it was being desecrated by those who were gouging the public. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, not merely though concerned with the one building and what was going on there, because Jesus' ultimate goal was to go to a spiritual temple. We know that he ultimately was going to a heavenly temple, not made with hands, because he was going to offer the great sacrifice that was needed to be offered, a sacrifice that had never really been adequate enough, all the repeated sacrifices over all those years. And so he comes as the greatest high priest, offering the ultimate sacrifice for sin, giving himself as an offering to God. And since he was sinless, he doesn't need to offer any kind of sacrifice for himself. He offered a sacrifice for sinners like you and me as he died in our place. And Jesus entered Jerusalem as that holy high priest and riding upon the colt that he rode upon, which no one had ever ridden, It was supposed to be reserved for people who were separate. That's significant. The first person to ride on a colt was making a statement. This is a person who's separated. This is a separated kind of event. And so he was uniquely qualified to cleanse not just the temple from corrupt worship, but the high priest to enter into heaven itself, into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. 
And so we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. But now at the consummation, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what kind of high priest is he? He was one who came absolutely qualified to offer the greatest sacrifice ever been offered himself. And he came as one who is not ignorant of those uh, and unaware of the struggles of those he came to represent. He's one of, with us. And therefore, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And because of his coming and because of his sacrifice and because of his high priestly purification, he offered himself. What's the result? Chapter 4, verse 16 of Hebrews. We, therefore, can have confidence. We can, therefore, come near to God with confidence. And that as our priest, he leads us to God. We can come to God. We can come to God as we are. Come to God with our struggles. Come to God with our our failings. Come to God with our questions. Come to God with our many different forms of of, uh, struggle. And because of our high priest, we can say, thank you for giving me entrance. Thank you that I can't be turned away. Thank you that I have hope for me in all of my struggles because of the great high priest. That day when we rode on donkeys in Yosemite National Park. We came to the base of Half Dome. If you've ever been there, it's one of the most vocal, I mean, the most visual center point within the park. It's an exposed outcropping of granite rock in which a glacier has cut off the face of it in the valley here, and there's this uh, Half Dome that's left on the park exposed with no trees on the top at all. And when you left on the donkey ride up through the areas where it was covered by trees, you finally leave your donkey behind and then you make your way up at the top. It's clear that you've reached another uh, higher plane here with the no trees, nothing to block your, your sight. And I would wonder if we haven't in this text begun to sort of move from the area of all the trees and things that might be distracting to say, let's have a fresh, clear glimpse of Christ. He is indeed the one who is the prophet of God bringing authoritative words from God and teaching from God. We dare not ignore it. He is the king of kings who comes in humility, looking as if he's not in control, but he is in control even over suffering and injustice to redeem it. And he is also the priest who comes to purify ruined sinners like you and me, stained by sin. He can cleanse us and bring us confidently to God. Let us worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the cries of that day, save us, oh, save us. How we thank you that Jesus did not come as a helpless one. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. We thank you that he is ever able to save those who come to him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's not a conquered king. He's the reigning and ruling King of Kings. He is not one coming to learn from others. He comes to bring the truth of what we need to change our lives and to show us the way, to bring the kind of warnings that we need to hear, as well as words of comfort 
and consolation in the promises of the gospel. Father, we pray that you'd help us this day to open our eyes to see Christ as the purifying priest. For those who are coming thinking that they can never find their past covered over and no full forgiveness. For those who are wondering if they can ever really come to God and feel afraid of God or feel intimidated by the thought of coming to God. Lord, help them, we pray, to embrace Christ by faith, the priest who offered himself as a sacrifice that we might confidently come to you. Lord, we pray today that we might treasure Christ, that we might obey Christ, that we might submit and live under Christ's reign and rule, and that we might indeed trust Christ to purify us and even our conscience, that we might worship you enjoy you and know you and live for you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.